The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501c3 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of new media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. St. Hildegard, for us. In the last lecture, in this lecture, we're kind of introducing kind of sub-ideas under each, each of these. And so what were the four concepts that we, we began our series with? Querere Deum. Those of you who actually speak Latin, forgive my pronunciation. Uh, Lexio Divina, Conversatio Morum, and Abitari Secum. Querere Deum means the search for God. It is kind of like the underlying thing of all Catholic spirituality. Catholic spirituality, the great saints and mystics kind of presume when we're reading their writing that we're sharing this search with them. Meaning that if you're not on the same search with them, when you go to read their writings, you don't get what they have to say or what they have to share. You're not part of the same conversation with them. Um, and, and so today, one of the things that kind of comes up, there's a lot of scholars who look at these saints and mystics, and they tell us all kinds of interesting facts about them, give us all kinds of interesting information, but they never really get at the heart of their message. And part of the reason why they're not able to get to the heart of their me- message to discern it is, um, is they really haven't engaged in the same search that the saints are. So, for ourselves, as we go through this series, beginning with the foundation, the search for God, becomes kind of like one of the foundation stones for our whole discussion. As we progress, we're going to be looking at other very, very important concepts, but last lecture and this lecture, I'm kind of going to unpacking elements of the search for God. What are other concepts that we'll look at later on in the course? And I introduce these as Lexio Divina, And many of you know this, most spiritual writers today, when they write about this, talk about this as a technique for contemplation. There's nothing wrong with looking at it that way. That's fine. Um, In that sense, the rosary is a kind of technique for contemplation. But to understand the saints and the mystics and their usage of Lexio Divina, I want to show in the course of this that Lexio Divina, which means sacred reading, Lexio Divina is not so much a technique as a whole way of being. Uh, in fact, Jean Leclerc, in his research in monasticism, he says that Lexio Divina, uh, or sacred reading and study and contemplation in the ancient world, in even the monastic world, these were synonymous with each other. So that when you went to study, you were availing yourself to the deepest kind of prayer. And when you went to pray, pray, you never prayed without reference to what you were studying, what you were reading. And so we'll, we'll come back to this and develop this a little bit more uh, next week when we look at Catherine of Siena and kind of Dominican spirituality. But today we're uh, with the Benedictine spirituality. The Benedictines, they take a vow called in Latin, conversatio morum, and I I talked about this last week too, 
conversatio morum typically gets translated into English as conversion of life. When Ignatius of Loyola read the rule of St. Benedict, he would have read a rule of St. Benedict that in Latin, in fact, said conversio morum, which means conversion of your way of life. But that's not the original Latin. And um, we will also be looking at this a little bit today, but also kind of throughout we'll develop this theme. Conversatio morum is more of a conversation of my whole being, my whole way of life with the gospel of Christ. And if you look at it like that, you can kind of see that Lexio Divina, sacred reading, reading the scriptures, um, studying the tradition, and submitting my life to Christ through that study, these are pursuits that kind of go together. They're connected with each other. Then the final uh, concept that I introduced last week and that we will also explore a little bit tonight is abitari secum. Abitari secum, uh, abitari means to live, and secum means within yourself, to dwell within yourself. And this is something that comes up in Benedictine spirituality. If you're living a converted life, if you're living the discipline of the Christian life, Benedict speaks about the ability to live with yourself. And last week when I, I introduced this concept, I said, this is probably one of the biggest poverties that we have in our culture today, that monasticism offered, but today people aren't able to do. People, quite literally today, cannot, quite actually today, cannot live with themselves. And so they invest in all forms of escapism. And, uh, you know, and in their escapism, they're running away. Of w from what? Themselves. Why don't they want to face themselves? Why can't they deal with themselves? Because there's painful things in our heart. That painful thing in our heart we're going to see with Sister Faustina as we uh, progress. She's going to call that painful thing in our heart misery. St. Thomas says, what is misery? Misery is the lack of love that ought to be in our hearts. There's love. We were created for love and by love. There's love that ought to be in our hearts. And when it's not there, when there's an absence, a vacuum, it's not a kind of benign absence. It's a suffering, tormenting, difficult, painful absence. And in that pain that is in our culture today, people are doing all kinds of things to, uh, to hurt themselves and to hurt others that they love. Uh, tying this with what we're going to see with St. Hildegard in our second lecture, because of that pain, the pain caused by sin, the absence of love caused by sin, our relationships, our most important relationships with each other, our communion with each other, is interrupted. It's frustrated. And only God can address that pain. Benedictine spirituality has proposed uh, by Bernard and Heldegarda being in. Benedictine spirituality is about making your heart vulnerable to God so that God can heal the lack of love that's there. How do you do this? By Lexio Divina, a sacred reading of this text that is so deep, of the scriptures of the tradition that is so deep that it puts your whole life into a conversation, a saving conversation with the Lord.
So uh, let me today introduce our next figure. Last week we talked about St. Bernard. I'm getting very fancy. This is, uh, I, I have a map for you. <clears throat> this you can't see from where you are, but just pretend, okay? This is, this is his audio-visual as I will ever get. You can ask some of my students that, um, you know, I, I studied at a medieval university where they had, you know, hammers and chisels and things. And, and so to show you a map is a, quite a big deal for me. All right. Um, up here is, this is France. And up here is Paris. Okay. And um, down here is Dijon. Okay, so Paris to Dijon, all right? Just south of Dijon, just a little bit, is Citeaux. And that's where Bernard was originally a monk. But he was sent from Citeaux over in this area here, just a little bit um, uh, to the east and just a, uh, well, to the east and just a little bit south of Citeaux to a place called Clairvaux. And so this is where St. Bernard of Clairvaux is from. St. Hildegard of Bingen, that sounds like it's from another planet, doesn't it? She really wasn't that far away from him. She was in, in, in Germany, or the Holy Roman Empire, and um, just up, well, off the map, but just about right here to give you, you know, so a little bit further away than Paris would have been from, from St. Bernard, but not, not super far away, and kind of in the same area. This is a very fertile area. The reforms of Citeaux, uh, Clairvaux, of Cluny, all took place in that area. It was a renewal of Benedictine spirituality that took place starting uh, in the 11th century and going for a couple hundred years into the 13th and 14th century. It was a powerhouse. Now, this powerhouse kind of exploded about the same time that uh, Europe was kind of struggling out of some very dark times. The Roman Empire had, had fallen some time ago, and feudalism had racked Europe and divided it in many different ways. And because of that, there was a lot of a huge lack of peace. People were in contention and fighting all the time. There was tremendous insecurity. So how do you find security in insecure times. Uh, doesn't that question kind of sound relevant today? <laughs> you know, uh, don't we live in, in, again, insecure times? And if you feel secure, please go turn on the news and then you can get back into your insecurity. <laughs> you know, all, bad things are happening all over the place all the time and we're always on the brink of destruction. Well, that's the way the medieval world was. How do you find peace in a world like that? And Bernard, what he began to see, and what he, we introduced last week when we talked about his treatise on humility and pride, but also his four degrees of love, for Bernard, the secret to find security and peace, to be able to dwell with yourself, was to find the maturity that you have by faith. That faith in God, if you live the discipline of your faith, you can come into human maturity. You can deepen your maturity. With that deep maturity, even though everything's going crazy around you, you can stand firm. In order to achieve this ideal, in order to make this ideal a reality, he started in Clairvaux, and then Clairvaux spread. There were like 80 foundations of monasteries from Clairvaux. 
he viewed Clairvaux as raising up in a whole army of what he called warriors of peace. Everybody thinks that he was a big supporter of the Crusades, and he did preach the Crusades. But that wasn't his fundamental enterprise. He'd, the Crusades were a little side thing he did almost as a favor. His biggest work, what he saw as his contribution, was raising up men to be warriors of peace, to bring peace to Europe. How do you achieve peace? The treatises yesterday, climbing the ladder of humility, resisting coming down into pride, growing by degree and degree after degree into greater and greater and more compelling life of love, of service. So that what does the mature man look like for St. Bernard? We're going to see St. Hildegard sees the very same thing. The mature man, the warrior of peace, he looks like the Holy Trinity. He loves God. He loves himself for God's own sake. Just like the Trinity loves each divine person, loves the other divine persons of God for God's own sake. Because God, God's love moves us to love that way. And remember, this, this was one of the things with querere deum, the search for God. There are two key sub-ideas. The first sub-idea that I introduced was for St. Bernard, the soul is never an isolated individual. When we hear soul, that's the way we think of ourselves. I need to work for the salvation of my soul. And we think about this as kind of a private enterprise, something I do for myself, by myself while I'm in church. And nobody else sees me. And for Bernard, he, couldn't, he wouldn't be able to intelligently understand that at all. Or if he understood it at all, he'd say, well, that's a very low level of love. You need to become like the Trinity. In, in Trinity, the divine persons love themselves because who they are is so good. And because God is so good, that's why you should love yourself. You should love yourself for his sake. Because he's the one who created you. He's the one who saved you. He has a great plan for you. And in you is his splendor. The higher degrees of love, then, see the person not as alienated but they see the person as in communion. And even for St. Bernard, the lowest level of human maturity, where you love yourself for your own sake, he, he even sees, well, when you love yourself, you see what your needs are. How could you be indifferent to the needs of your brother or sister? You would necessarily be implicated in those needs because you know you have those, share those needs. Your heart would go out to them. You would want to in, involve yourself in their plight. This is Bernard's, the way he begins his degrees of love, and it goes on from, from there. The point that I want to make that we'll see again with St. Hildegard of Bingen in our second presentation tonight is that she also sees the person in communion. The person who has been redeemed by Christ is in, implicated in the plight of their, of their brothers and sisters. That will be her second vision. What I want to start out tonight, though, with is her first vision, the vision of the Iron Mountain. So Hildegard of Bingen was a, a, a Benedictine uh, sister who went into religious life very early on. She was kind of raised in the convent. As she was being raised, they noted that she had some extraordinary gifts. 
She was able to grasp things very easily. She uh, eventually uh, learned uh, how to uh, read and write, and she became one of the great intellectual giants of, of her era. She was a contemporary of St. Bernard. One of the things, though, she wasn't just a scholar. She was also a deep contemplative, and as she prayed, she would sometimes have these fantastic visions. She wrote about these visions and submitted what she was experiencing to St. Bernard because he was the spiritual authority of the age. She was wondering, she asked St. Bernard whether or not she was nuts. You know, should I be talking about this kind of stuff? Um, you know, because she, she said something along, you know, I'm a weak woman and I don't want to make mistakes. And St. Bernard, Bernard said, this is of the Holy Spirit. You, you know, you must declare this to the world. Uh, isn't it interesting how the saints help each other and further each other along? She began to write her visions out, and as she wrote her visions out, she began to reflect on them more and develop them. Her book of visions then are, is one of the great spiritual classics of the Catholic tradition. Now, this particular spiritual classic was a usurped a little bit by people who had all kinds of different agendas. Kind of a shadow of suspicion kind of hung over this body of literature for a long time. Pope Benedict rehabilitated it he, by declaring her a doctor of the church. So she is one of only four doctors of the church. The first two were declared so by Pope Paul VI in 1972. That would be St. Teresa of Avila and St. Catherine of Siena. And then uh, Pope uh, John Paul II will declare, in the year 2000, he'll declare St. Therese of Lisieux a doctor of the church. And then finally... Uh, uh, Benedict, a couple years ago, just um, after the World Youth Day in Madrid, he declared John of Avila a doctor of the church, and he also declared Hildegard of Bingen a doctor of the church. And he asked the faithful to look at her writings and see in her writings something of our universal patrimony. This first, and that's what I want to kind of for us to dwell on a little bit tonight. What is it that she offers all of us? What's, what is it that something vital that we need today in her writings? And we're going to see this in her first vision. Remember I told you there was two things that uh, St. Bernard showed us last week. I said person and communion. And the other one I forgot to tell you, you can't let me get away with this. Uh, the other one I forgot to tell you was, the, um, was truth. The ancients, the medievals had a notion of truth that is a little bit different than ours. And I, I went over this before uh, last week. I want to go over it again because it helps us understand what did she see. She had this vision. She saw this iron mountain covered with fire and windows with a, a small boy in front of it. What does this image mean? And what does this have to do with the truth? The truth for the medievals is what is the reality of what is now you might think that's obvious but actually as modern people we've been trained to think of the truth differently practically when you're in a board meeting at a business or um, or talking about a job that needs to get done the standard by which you judge what's going on isn't what is. The standard by which you judge is the results. 
you want. That way of looking at the world, that's idealism. And it was formally explained by the, examined, explored by the German idealists uh, at the be in the uh, late 18th, early 19th century. Results-oriented approach to the world. This would be kind of Hegel. What matters uh, for Hegel, you have the way things are, and they confront something that, that turns everything upside down, and then you arrive at the new synthesis. And the new synthesis is the most important thing. And we're always coming into the new synthesis. Marx picked up the same idea and developed dialectic uh, materialism, a, a, a historical process by which the, the proletariat will rise up against the upper class, and a new world order will emerge. And when that new world order emerges, we will at last have utopia. People will be happy on Earth. We will have a worker's paradise. And for over 70 years, Russia lived by this worker's paradise. Every five years, they had their five-year plans with their goals stated, the results they wanted to have. And they would drive their whole economy towards those goals, work all those people towards the visible results they wanted, telling their people that if you attain this, we will be closer to our worker's paradise. And you know what they discovered? No matter how hard you chased it, you could, and no matter how many times you met all the goals, you never got paradise on earth. There's a way in which we also live our lives thinking that the results are the truth by which we judge whether or not we're being successful or faithful. Mother Teresa, do you remember what she said about success? You know, somebody asked her, how are you ever going to be successful? And she responded, Jesus isn't asking us to be successful. He's asking us to be faithful. The truth sees what is and welcomes it. And what is, is the love of God. And it is un unchanging. And it is on fire. And it is unmovable. It is a mountain, a mountain by which we can judge everything else that's going on in our lives. If we can see this mountain with Hildegarda Bingen, we begin to be able to see how we can stand firm during when everything is going crazy around us. We'll return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis in just a moment. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. O good Jesus, hear me. Within thy wounds, hide me. Suffer me not to be separated from thee. 
from the malignant enemy, defend me. In the hour of my death, call me, and bid me come to thee, that with thy saints I may praise thee, forever and ever. Amen. If you have been blessed in some way by the spiritual nourishment and teachings offered freely by all those involved with Discerning Hearts programs, please consider a positive review for the various programs on the iTunes and Google Play stores. This is a great way to help the ministry and is an encouragement to others who are seeking the best in spiritual formation to find and check out the programs. Won't you please help? It's an easy way to help give back and to be a part of the mission. Thank you and God bless from all at Discerning Hearts. We now return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. So let me read her description. So the, the way her visions go, when you read each of her visions, the first part, she actually tells you exactly what she sees when she has this vision. And then she does a line-by-line commentary. She interprets what it means. I'm going to just read you the vision part, and then I'll kind of explain her interpretation afterwards. So, uh, from uh, the classics of Western spirituality, Hildegard of Bingen, uh, the showings or the vision, and this is vision one. God enthroned shows himself to Hildegard. I saw a great mountain, the color of iron, and enthroned on it one of such great glory that it blinded my sight. On each side of him there were extended a soft shadow, like a wing of wondrous breadth and length. Before him, at the foot of the mountain, stood an image full of eyes on all sides, in which, because of those eyes, I could discern no human form. In front of this image stood another, a child, wearing a tunic of subdued color, but white shoes upon whose head such glory descended from the one enthroned upon the mountain that I could not look at its face. But from the one who sat upon the throne, upon the mountain, many living sparks sprang forth, which flew very sweetly around the images. Also I perceived in this mountain many little windows in which appeared human heads, some of subdued colors and some whites. So, pretty wild image. What does it mean? As you unpack it, the mountain is an image of the Holy Trinity. Whenever you hear many, many eyes, this is a scriptural reference, creatures that have lots of eyes, I can't remember if they're cherubim or seraphim, one of the two. Creatures with, I think they're cherubim, with lots of eyes, it means they know everything. And the eye is a symbol of knowledge. So if there's lots of eyes, they know everything. Before this mountain, everything is known, is what this means. The mountain itself is iron, meaning it doesn't move. It's hard. It doesn't change. Why is this important? Why, why does, and I, it's, it's Trinitarian. You have the one enthroned on the mountain. You have the little child, Christ. And you have fire, sparks and fire. You have windows, the communion of the saints on this mountain. And so in the Trinity, there are windows. All of heaven is staring out of, uh, at us from this mountain, from the Holy Trinity, gazing at us with the same fiery love 
that the one seated, the Father, seated on top of this mountain is looking at us with. It's a dynamic, powerful image of the Trinity, isn't it? In other words, uh, this isn't your typical drawing a shamrock on the board. Uh, you, you know, uh, do you remember that uh, image of the Trinity? I don't know if you had the same thing in second grade. I, that's what I had. I had the shamrock. Uh, I can't remember who it was, but somebody said, you know, so you have the three parts of the shamrock, right? But it's one shamrock. That's like the Trinity. And if you dared ask any questions, <laughs> you got the same answer. Do you remember what the answer was? You know, you know what does this mean? The, you're not supposed to know. It's a mystery. You know, okay, you know. <laughs> And the idea of a communion of love, the idea that this is the deepest truth in the universe, wasn't really explained to us. Instead, we left those lessons kind of scratching our head, saying, why exactly do we believe this? Do you remember that? You know? And yet, it gets proposed. Now, I've heard some very good homilies on the Trinity, and so there are those who can really explain this mystery. What I want to concentrate for this explanation is simply that what is being presented is an image of burning love. That the Trinity, that when we gaze on the Trinity, the Trinity is burning in love. Burning in love for us. Burning in love, it's a loving communion on fire with affection. In other words, the image of Trinity that St. Hildegard is giving us is an image Filled with life. Life to the full. Life to the full. Last week I told you that John Paul II, when he came to Denver in 1993, he set as the theme for World Youth Day, he said, it will be John 10.10. And that, the verse about the Good Shepherd, but just before the verse of the Good Shepherd, he talks about the thieves who come to take the sheep. And he talks about the need to rescue the sheep from the thieves. And he talks about himself. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. And John Paul II says, we need a new communion with one another based in this fullness of life. We need a new communion with one another based on this fullness of life. Today, typically, our imaginations have been formed in certain ways about our world and about the way we relate to one another. You have been practicing your faith. You're not totally subjected to it, but it still lingers in you. If you don't live by the vision of the Trinity, in other words, this iron mountain, there's some other vision probably that you're living with. And if it's the modern vision, there's some problems with it. For example... I'm not saying anything uh, against science. Uh, those scientists who explore different aspects of evolution, I say more power to you. Keep on going. I look forward to your insights. And, and I would even say to such scientists, it's very good that you're doing the science and I'm not because I don't know anything about science. I, I'm bad at science. I'm very bad at science. I <laughs> barely passed biology. <laughs> At the same token, just because somebody is a scientist doesn't mean they're a good theologian. And I always get concerned when scientists make theological, reach theological judgments. 
you know, when uh, Darwin, for example, in, ex in describing natural selection, the idea that there might be something like natural selection, that's interesting. But in describing natural selection, when he described it, his wife is the survival of the fittest and chance. That presents a kind of worldview which is filled with contention and competition and strife. Interestingly enough, in the 19th century in which he was writing, it was a time of wars and upheaval and strife. So you could see when he was writing that theological conclusion about life, it was appealing to everybody's imagination. They didn't question it. Scientists today actually uh, are very concerned not so much about the idea of evolution, but about the way Darwin kind of uh, reached his conclusions because there was no scientific basis. He quite literally, actually, literally, too, appealed to the imagination in his descriptions of what, what he saw. In other words, the scientific evidence he assimilated there was very interesting. But the way he imagined it to be and the theological spin he gave to it, those were the products of his imagination, and he was appealing to the, the imagination of the people of, at the time. It wasn't science, in other words. Darwin, the scientist, was probably quite smart. Darwin, the theologian, was imaginative. Now, I say this to you because we live in a world today where that imaginative idea from the 19th century kind of is the overriding idea in a lot of our relationships and the way we relate today. In our relationships in not only the business community or the public square or the political community, but even in our families. In our families, in our relationships with one another, how often do we succumb to the idea that it's survival of the fittest in my house? My wife wants it one way, I want it the other way. Whichever one of us can be the more stubborn is going to get, get it. It's the survival of the fittest. You know. Isn't that a way we relate to each other? But that's not the Christian way of relating. That's not what Heldegard sees. Heldegard invites us to see something totally different. What if at the very heart of the universe, what if at the very, in the very fabric of how the universe came forth, it wasn't just happen chance and natural selection and contention and strife? What if at the heart of the universe, it is burning love. What if we all came from love? And what if we're all going to love? What does that tell us? This is what, in fact, this is the Iron Mountain Heldegard is seeing. She's seen an Iron Mountain of God's unchanging love. What does that tell us? It tells us that if we want to be happy, if, if we want to reach the fullness of who we are, the only way we can do it is by loving. And so what does this mean like for our family life? I want one thing. My wife wants the other thing. And we're tempted towards that competition of stubbornness. It means that if I want to be happy and I want my wife to be happy, I die to myself out of love for her. To see love. To see the Holy Trinity means to choose to live in a certain way. 
It means to renounce living without love. That doesn't mean that we'll be perfect at it. We're going to fail. In our next vision, we're going to see why we fail. We live with all kinds of deception. Uh, but what I'm proposing right now is that Heldegard's vision of what's ultimately in the world, at the heart of the world, is much better than the modern vision, isn't it? She's seen a world founded on love, where we judge things by love. What, how do we see the world today? What, what is the standards by which we judge things? What is the truth? When we start asking these kinds of questions, when we start exploring these kinds of questions in our prayer, when we bring these kinds of questions to the Lord, the wisdom of the saints begins to open for us. And a new way of life begins to open up because rather than trying to change the world into what we want it to be, get the results we want, the measurable results we need, rather than going in that direction, we begin to accept God's love for what it is. We accept the truth of it, and we let the fire of it rage in our hearts. And when that happens, everything is transformed. There was a um, Carmelite who wrote in the 1940s and 50s, well, he survived through the war. He may have started writing actually in the 50s and 60s. Uh, his, um, his last name was Stinnison. I think he was from one of the Belgique Carmelite communities, and he went up to form a new community in Scandinavia. He wrote a book called um, Into Your Hands, Father. Into Your Hands, Father. Ignatius Press has recently published it. I think it was first published in 58, and there's a 2011 release of it. And he, he talks about the whole of the Christian life in terms of surrender, surrender to God. But in order to surrender to God, there's, there's kind of three stages. And the first stage of surrendering to God is accepting God's will. Hildegard's vision is a vision of God's will as not something that we manipulate, or change to our liking, Hildegard's vision is something that we accept. There is a standard in my life, and that standard comes from the Holy Trinity, and I can only know that, that standard if I turn to the Lord in faith. Now, this is the curious thing that Stinnison says that develops Hildegard's idea, and I love this. He says, God is always revealing his will in everything that happens. We like to think that God only reveals his will at spiritual moments, when you're at Mass and you hear a good homily, or you go to Holy Communion and you have that beautiful grace where it's really silent and easy to pray. You know, when I had kids, I don't know about you, but when my kids, I started having kids, I do not remember a moment like that from the time my first was born <laughs> until, you know, very recently, you know, as they're starting to move out of the house. It was very hard, it was very hard to pray. I just didn't have a lot of deep... Uh, deep moments. There were there were flashes, consoling flashes, but not you know long times in prayer. And and I think that my experience during those years is a very common experience. I don't think a lot of people experience deep consolation during the years of parenting young children. It's tough. It's very tough. But Stinnison says God reveals His will not only at those beautiful moments that God reveals his will through people's opposition to it. 
He reveals his will through the opposition of others to his will. He reveals his will through my opposition to his will. If you want to know what the will of God is, look at how you're opposing it. And he, he introduces this idea. He says, if you know the will of God, if you've accepted the will of God, then you are able to go through your life untroubled because you know God is always disclosing his will no matter what happens, whether it's a good thing or bad thing. And so you're not troubled about good things or bad things that happen. So here's a, good ex uh, here's a little examination of conscience. What troubles you in your life? If you are troubled, you're probably not seeing the Iron Mountain of St. Hildegard. If you find yourself getting upset about little things all the time, you're probably, um, you're probably not fully accepting that Iron Mountain as the standard of your life. Probably you're letting a lot of other things be the standard of your life. For me, the poison is traffic. <laughs> I, um, I, I, I don't know what happened uh, between the time I learned how to drive and now, but it seems like all the other drivers on the road are getting progressively worse, you know. <laughs> Couldn't have anything to do with me, you know. They're uh, cutting in and out, not obeying traffic signs, and, and, and then when it comes to getting tickets, I, you know, I don't understand why no one else gets tickets except me. I'm a better driver than them. <laughs> all right. So, you know, something's going on here, and I'm trying to figure it out. Well, it really troubles me when somebody cuts me off in, in traffic, you know. When I, I lived in Italy, I got to drive in Italy. It was, it was magnificent to drive in Italy. I, lit, I got to drive in a city where everybody drives just like me. <laughs> you know, we were all friends, you know. Oh, you know. <laughs> Here, you don't understand things about, you know, when you come to full stops and not. Drifting into each other's lane, you, 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 you got it all wrong. In Italy, it's an art, you know. <laughs> so now you know why I get tickets. Uh, <laughs> all right, but the, the point is, what, what's going on? What, why is bad traffic so annoying to me that I even find myself upset? You know, why did that person do that? Well. Am I driving with the Iron Mountain as the standard of the way I drive? Probably not. Probably what's going on is when I'm driving, I'm playing into the myth of the survival of the fittest. I'm tired. I want to get home. I deserve to get home and to sit down and read a book because it's been a long, hard day. And I'm entitled. No one ever thinks like that, but I do. <laughs> and, and so do you see what I'm driven, the goal I have in mind, the result I have in mind, the result of being able to relax at home, uh, you know, and, and then I get home and people are fighting and all my expectations are shattered one after another. Am I li living by the Iron Mountain or am I living by my own false expectations? This is what Heldegard's trying to get at. One final note about the Iron Mountain. Um, 
many times in prayer and spirituality, people approach God wanting God to conform to the image and likeness they have for him. So they want a trinity, if they believe in a trinity, they want a trinity that kind of corresponds to the sentimental notion they want of God. Kind of a good grandfather guy who excuses my failings, but make sure all the other bad guys really get theirs. <laughs> you know? And, um, or they want the esoteric God. The God that I'm able to attain by my own great achievements. So if I master this form of prayer, or I'm faithful in this kind of discipline, then I get him because I deserve him, and they don't because they didn't do this yet. You know, Well, there are a gazillion idols like that that float around in our hearts. We're going to get to look at this more when we study St. John of the Cross. But only when we open up our hearts to the Iron Mountain, to something that's beyond my own expectations of God, only when I bow before the mystery of God and surrender my expectations and accept him for who he is, because he is the one who is. And my expectations are nothing but fantasy. The, the calculations of a lack of love that's inside me. Those expe expectations need to die. They need to surrender before the Iron Mountain. I need to let the fire of God's love burn that away so that my heart has space, has clarity to enjoy God's presence for what it is, the strength and the power of it. When I root myself on that objective mystery of God, I've begun the road into Christian mysticism. Did you know that you've all begun the road into Christian mysticism? You didn't know that. You thought that the only mystics in, in Colorado were in the bookshops of Boulder, didn't you? <laughs> I know, I know, and, and, and you're, you're probably walking by and seeing the incense and the crystals and going, oh, if only I could be a mystic too, you know. Well, there is a spiritual hunger that you see in places like Boulder, and, um, and there's a deep need. But you have something that can satisfy that hunger, and you may not even know that you have it. What is that? Thing deep inside you that you have. When you were baptized, you were baptized into the mystery of Christ. How? Through the holy mysteries, the sacraments. The sacraments is how the mystery of Christ, the risen Lord at the right hand of the Father, the sacraments are how the risen Lord touch us in this world right here and right now. And when he touches us, he opens up the eyes of our hearts to the same Iron Mountain that St. Hildegard saw. And as you gaze on what Jesus, the risen Lord, sees, the little boy in this vision that Hildegard has, as you gaze on what the risen Lord sees, the, the fire of God's love begins to consume you, and you can't be the same, and your judgment changes, and you are raised up, and you're brought into the mystery of that Iron Mountain. You become one of those figures who's looking at, out at us right now. The figures who 
are peering out through those windows on that iron mountain that St. Helicard saw. And this is the last thing I'll say about that vision. It's an interesting thing that she saw all those windows with the saints looking through. Some of the saints were white, some of them were other colors. It depended on how well they lived their life. Is what The more pure their love was in this life, the more splendorous and, and radiant they were in God. But here's the interesting thing about those windows. Do you, have you ever heard of the term icon? Yeah, yeah. You you think that Bill Gates invented that, don't you? <laughs> well, no, you know he didn't. But icon icon is a holy image. We have actually one in the shrine of Saint Anne. There's a uh, an icon of Anne, the grandmother of Jesus, and sitting on her lap is Mary, her daughter, and sitting on the lap of Mary is Jesus, and it's a beautiful icon. An icon. Uh, people commonly translate it as a window into heaven. As you gaze on it, you're, you're getting to taste something of heaven. And that's true, but that's not quite what an icon is um, fully. It, it does give us a sense of heaven when we see one. But the, the, um, our Eastern brothers and sisters say an icon is a window through which heaven looks on us. The word icon means window. And it's a window through which heaven looks on us. We stand before the shadow of heaven. And the mystery of heaven is spilling in on us all over the place. God's love is filling us even right now. We, we can choose not to welcome that. We can choose to be distracted from that. We can choose to close our eyes to the Iron Mountain whose splendor is, is exploding all around us even right now. But what, when we make those choices, we're not really living by faith. When we choose to live in the shadow of heaven, though, when we choose to live with the saints gazing on us before this heavenly fire, before this truth that does not change, this truth which is love, everything in our life different. Everything is transformed. Our whole way of life is submitted to the gospel of Christ, and we are able to live with ourselves. We're able to accept what God is doing in us, and in accepting what God is doing in us, he can raise us up into his inner life. So um, that's the Iron Mountain. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com or download the free Discerning Hearts app located at the iTunes and Google Play app stores. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will First, pray for our mission, and if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lullis.